Hi, this is Emily. Just before this episode begins, I want to let everyone know that Wednesday the 20th of March, Wednesday after this episode is being released, is World Storytelling Day. We at the museum will be celebrating World Storytelling Day by providing some very special tours in the evening at 6, 6.30, 7 and 7.30. All proceeds from ticket sales will be going to Jigsaw, the National Centre for Youth Mental Health. Jigsaw focuses on people aged 15 to 25, providing a service to ensure that no young person feels alone, isolated or disconnected from others. They provide vital supports to young people with their mental health by working closely with communities across Ireland. You can find out more about Jigsaw by visiting their website, jigsaw.ie, and buy tickets for the National Leprechaun Museum's Celebration of World Storytelling Day at leprechaunmuseum.ie. We hope to see you there. Hello, welcome again to the National Leprechaun Museum podcast. I'm Emily. I'm Shannon. I'm Andy. I'm Tom. And I'm a guest here. My name is Dara. And I'm going to bring you all back about 100 years ago to the Hill of Tara in Ireland on a beautiful sunny day where Tom's grandfather, great-grandfather actually, was walking through the grass and saw in the grass a shiny object which turned out to be a book, which turned out to have pages bearing the coordinates of a building in Dublin that was to become the National Leprechaun Museum, because that's exactly how it happened, Tom, nine years ago, wasn't it? That's exactly how it happened. That's exactly how it happened. Were you there? I was there. <laughs> Uncanny. I like, it's written on a, little, on a, on a, stone. a stone inside in, one in, of the rooms. I read an interview with you from a few years ago, Tom, and you said the way that you found the building of the National Leprechaun Museum, where it's currently located, was that you walked the streets of Dublin. That's exactly how it happened. You had an idea. Can you talk us through it? You had an idea that you said, actually, nobody's ever done this. Yeah, I had an idea and it, it seemed like a reasonable idea. I guess the answer to like when you have an idea, even if it's the wrong, it doesn't work out, it was still the right thing to do because we mm-hmm. didn't know whether it would work or not. And one of the big issues you have when you do new things is when do you know you're not wrong? Right. And when I came into this building, which is the old Foss building, there was on the floor, someone had photocopied an old Irish pound note, but yes. shrunk it down to a quarter of the size. Hilarious. And I picked it up off the floor and I said, well, obviously, this must be a sign. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the building so, before that, it was the morgue, wasn't it? Years ago, it was the morgue for Jervis Street across the road. Um, and so there's all these things going on that you kind of go, that's interesting. At some stage it was a lingerie factory as well, no? Not, not at the same time, obviously. Well, this is why it's called Twilfit House, because it will fit. Oh. So it makes, it's, and it's called the Twilfit Industry for corset manufacturing. Yeah. Um, and all the floors here are built in a really substantial way because it was all cast iron machinery st- standing on the surfaces and people working here. And we did have a tour of ladies who used to work in here once came through and Mark took them on a very nice tour of the building and they exchanged stories about what it was like to work here and then wh- how we'd repurposed it. <laughs> so, um, but I think um, this is the way things will go on and I think people will find new purposes for different things. So it's a question of always looking and it takes a long time to find things. So if anybody's on that journey, don't worry, it'll eventually work out. One of the things that I'm very amused about reading the TripAdvisor reviews of oh this place, God. wait, they're mostly glowing. They are mostly <laughs> glowing there are some fantastic in fairness. Ones. There's some fantastic ones. One of my favourites was the person recently who said, very disappointed in the experience, wanted to pet and feed a leprechaun, but couldn't. Now, he wouldn't give you one star. He gave you two, in fairness, which I thought was nice. (laughs) Nobody finds leprechauns here. Nobody finds the, I don't know, the stereotypical red-haired, bejany, Turralurralurralai, Darby O'Gill visited leprechauns, except obviously in the room that we're, we're in now. Yeah, there's a basket and of them. And still, <laughs> and still, nine years on, here we are. And you're still employing people and you still have people here working with you because it's more about storytelling and folklore. Yes, thanks to these people. Yeah. still here it's not really it we, we put the we put the thing together and then it was attracting the high quality people to work here and the engagement they bring and the we had a guy in here and he said where's the best place to see a leprechaun and i pointed to his head <laughs> you know? um, because it's a journey of imagination it's a journey on creativity and you do rely on the people coming in to unpack their imaginative backpack and then you play together with that um, and you can tell the difference quite quickly with kids who've been read bedtime stories and kids who get their engagement on a screen. 
it's passive or, or active engagement. And there's a big difference there. And losing that is a real defeat for our imagination as a society. It uh, reminds me that um, my small baby recently went to the public health nurse and she said, oh, you can really tell that he's not put in front of a screen all the time that he's interacted with oh. at eight months old. And I'm, oh. I'm, yeah, and I mean, I find that extraordinary. And Tom, you never, I, I know we're focusing on this for a little bit, but it is nine years since you opened the place. Nine years to the day. To the day. Yeah. To the day. <laughs> on a day where we've had sunshine, rain, sleet, wind, hail, thunder and lightning. Yeah. I mean, and like, snow. Yes. And snow. There's yes. something really Shakespearean about it. There's something brilliant about it. You did have the option and you could have just made this place entirely about leprechauns. You never chose to go down that route. You always wanted to bring it back to there's more to there's more to it than that it, it was about this thing that why are there leprechauns in Ireland right why would there be and what is the what is the point what is the because if they didn't have a relevance or some kind of use they would have disappeared out of our, our we wouldn't talk about them mm. so it became me a really interesting thing okay people get really enervated or, or enraged by leprechauns <laughs> it's pressing some button what is that button and why does it why does it connect into people that deeply and it's it's they're a gateway cr- creature into the other world <laughs> you know it's, and you don't have to think when you say leprechaun people don't have to think they're not asked to think about the puka or the banshee or the duhala you, you don't have to you just straight in i get it and it would have been easy i guess to go down the other route mm. but not as interesting and you wouldn't meet as interesting people absolutely yeah if you didn't if, if you went down that route oh no completely the staff make a place and all of the reviews come back to it. Shannon, what is your favourite dark and twisty fairy tale that you've learned since you've been working at the National Leprechaun Museum? I'm actually learning one at the moment, which is the Enchanted Cave of Keshkorin. Okay. Which is um, one that before I was kind of pointed towards that I hadn't heard. It's a really obscure Fionn McCool story. But he ends up in the fairy otherworld, as you do, just wandering around on a hunt, ends up in the fairy otherworld. And he's confronted by these three fair, like they're the daughters of the fairy king, but they are the most hideous creatures ever seen. And actually earlier on today, I was trying to draw what one might look like just to kind of visualize it in my head. And the descriptions are that they're a cross between a dog and a cat and a chicken, that they have um, long nails like bone that can like tear and rend flesh. They have fangs, they have moustaches are actually, it's, it's really honed in that they have moustaches, which is bizarre and that their hair is wiry and twisted and they can turn their heads 100% around or 360 degrees rather. Yep, yeah, that was a terrifying story to encounter. <laughs> um, the, the kind of the core description of these three creatures, well, there's four of them, but the fourth one only comes in at the end, is that look at them once, and you wouldn't want to look at them again. Look at them again, and you won't survive it. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And we can see common threads, obviously, of different myths. Like mm. Medusa would be a very obvious oh, choice. Oh, yeah, to very much so. Yeah. Compare and um, contrast. There's a lot of interconnectedness across European folklore and mythology. It's something that I didn't realize before I started working here and kind of looking into it a lot. Particularly, there's um a group, the Tuhadeidanen. Mm-hmm. which would be quite well known here as kind of a fairy people. But they're kind of based around the goddess Danu, who appears across the entirety of Europe. Like the Danube River is named for her. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So she appears all across European mythology in different ways. And be the Morrigan as well, who's a triple goddess. And triple goddesses turn up, of course, Greek mythology is the one that people think of with... Um, the fates. The, the fates and um, Hebe, Hecate, and the one whose name I can never remember, Hecuba. So the, the Morrigan is kind of a, she, she's a crow and she's a warrior and she's three goddesses and she's one goddess. She's a fascinating figure to look at. But then she also appears in Arthurian legends in England as Morgan Le Fay. Mm-hmm. Um, most often, but sometimes just called the Morrigan again. So yeah, um, that's kind of, that's a complete segue from where I started, but But do you find that in your exploration of the story tales, and again, I'll go back to my question or my statement with Tom that the National Leprechaun Museum in Ireland is not just about leprechauns. Do you find that the researching of these fairy stories makes you realise that actually the leprechaun probably just had the best marketing 
or the best costume of all of the Irish fairies. And that's why most people know them. I think part of the reason people are so attracted to leprechauns as a figure for Ireland is that their stories aren't usually miserable. Right. <laughs> a lot of Irish stories are completely devastatingly horrific. No one lives happily ever after. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, our version of and then they all live happily ever after is and then they all died. So um, you look at leprechaun stories, there's a, it's kind of trickery and joking, but there's no, there doesn't tend to be death or evisceration or anything that you might go, ugh. Mm. To. Unless you're talking about the vampire lady leprechauns of Schleen. Oh, yes. Well, there's a, them, there's of course. There, no, like, <laughs> we cannot. Tell me about the vampire lady leprechauns of, of Schleen. Schleen? Uh, I think it's Schleem or Schleem. 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 Um, we need Pawdy here because he's our, he's our carry man. There is a story from a that region that uh, in the Fortress of Slaughter, which has another name that sounds a lot less sinister, <coughs> there are a group of vampire lady leprechauns. Mm-hmm. They're small, diminutive, incredibly beautiful women who, if you put milk in your tea during Lent, will come in the night and suck your blood and I'm looking at the tea on the table in front of yeah. us the milky tea I've got milk Tom's got milk uh, uh, black black Shnon- tea oh. <laughs> <laughs> safe so yeah and I Paudy who's another storyteller here he mentioned the vampire lady leprechauns in passing at one stage and I thought he has to be making that up there's no way that's real and I googled and I googled and nothing was coming up and so I said okay Paudy's just made that up and then I was looking through one of the books we have here and they were there and I was like Paudy didn't make this up Mm. And then I was doing a, a two-person tour with Pody around Halloween, and he told the tale of the vampire lady leprechaun Drusnine. Mm. I got to hear it from him himself in right. his beautiful accent. So, so you're going to have to put one on, put that on a future podcast. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I think can we start selling vampire lady leprechaun Drusnine dolls? We can, of course, because <laughs> <laughs> I just think that's a, it's a brilliant. Do not add milk. Because <laughs> <laughs> it is uh, the leprechaun is generally sort of like I refer to it as. Uh, it's the ray of sunlight that when mixed with the rain makes the rainbow. And they're sort of like the, the comic relief, the antidote. But then you find some of the leprechaun stories. Mm. They're bloodsuckers or... Or is uh, the Brian Baru leprechaun oh story. Oh yeah, that's a dark one. In that the leprechaun mm. is, he's more of a... More a hurtig biog is his name. Oh, is that his name? Mm. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, Brian Baru, a historical <laughs> figure, last Irish high king fighting the Vikings, allegedly had a leprechaun spy. Uh, and Brian had this magical necklace mm. called the clam, where if you put it on someone's neck, they couldn't take it off, and if they lied, it would tighten and tighten and tighten and strangle them to death. And uh, Brian's leprechaun eventually convinced him to get rid of this, to, to throw it into Loch Derg. After the leprechaun is um, nearly burnt alive in a pot of oil. It's uh, very hard to kill a leprechaun. It is. They, they, they're hearty beasts. Um, so that story is quite horrific in both Brian's actions with the clam and the servant maids who tried to kill the leprechaun, but the leprechaun is sort of the moral compass mm. of the piece. But then you get stories about like um, the fear darags, which are sort of the rogue leprechauns and the chloricons, who are the alcoholic leprechauns. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about a bit on, I think, the last episode. But the leprechauns, they aren't all sort of light and trickstery. And even if you look at the stories with the trickster leprechauns, you can tell them if, if you're telling them sort of the leprechaun is you know, a twinkly eyed fella, they're light. But you can take a lot of those stories. Like there's one, the fairy list. Mm. which is sometimes told as a leprechaun story, which is about um, some, some girls p- pick flower from a fairy ring and uh, they're then tormented by the fairies. They can't sleep without feeling that they're lying on nettles and they can't eat without uh, the milk turning sour in their mouths. And it's told, I tell it a lot to kids, as a sort of light, happy uh, story about, you know, and, and she has to outdance the fairy tales and she's dabbing and flossing all over the place. But I've then also retold it as a, a very dark story, almost more like The Goblin Market by Christina Rossetti, mm-hmm. about your life is on the line because you've messed with these fairies and this is their judgment. And it all depends on how you're telling them. They, they can either be the antidote or they can be horrific. I think some of them do. They, the the ones that have, don't have anything that's really overtly sinister, uh, a lot of the leprechaun stories have this kind of strange undertone, you know, mm. like, a, like, a, like a darkness that's just lurking underneath. I'm thinking one in particular of that I'm learning at the moment. It's in... It's in Bob Curran's book, The the Truth About Leprechauns. Which and is also where I found the vampire lady leprechauns. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, he, he's mad for his, his vampire yeah. leprechauns. Um, uh, he, he's convinced that Bram Stoker was inspired to write Dracula, not by Vlad the Impaler, but by, like, old Irish oh, yeah. well, folklore no, leprechaun stories. Yeah, That's Aberton the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But getting completely off topic, Bram Stoker didn't know who Vlad the, the Impaler was. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't a known figure. Like, they've gone through his research. He found the name... 
Dracul because it was a fairly common name because the order of the dragon there were a lot of members of that and then the sons were then called Dracul son of dragon and isn't there the other theory that it actually comes from Druk Drukula uh, which is Irish for bad blood oh that um, would Drukula Drukula yeah. he was like bedridden as a child and his grandmother uh, who was from the Wisht mm-hmm. told him all sorts of horrific stories and she I think she'd lived through the famine yeah mm-hmm. so she had these memories of these sort of half dead people shambling along and uh, there was tales of like people like they, they would cut the vein of a cow and mix the blood with oat to make a sort of meal. Mm. They still do it today. In mm. I mean, it was a reasonable, reasonably common enough practice. Mm. Still do it in Africa. Cut, cut the cows and drink yeah. the blood. Yeah. Mix it with milk. Yeah. You all deal with children. <laughs> Just bear with me on this one. Bear with me on this one. You all deal with children on a, on, yeah, exactly, on a daily basis. I do have a very good point with this. <laughs> And children now obviously have so many screens and devices that they can look at stories and they're hearing stories of all over the world. But if you look at Netflix or YouTube as a good example, most of the stories about fairies are superhero and they're empowering and they're light and there's good cartoons and pictures and colours. Whereas you're bringing them into this building and you are teaching them dark stories. Mm-hmm. I like I like the fact that you said, oh, and I just casually told a story about this woman who uh, couldn't eat, couldn't sleep, couldn't drink to a group of children. Do you find that uh, children are more engaged because there's less stimulus here? They have no choice but really to focus with you. It depends. Okay. Yeah. When was the last time they ate? Oh, right. I think that's a big factor. <laughs> like, we, we, the museum, like the, on the leaflet, it says, you know, not recommended for children under the age of seven. I say that very much depends on, like, a five-year-old might come in, when was the last time they ate, they slept, what mood are they in? Because, and, yeah. and also they've got small bladders. Because storytelling, it's, it's a, an art that involves engagement, so you need things going both ways. Mm-hmm. So you can casually watch a TV programme, you can't casually watch a storyteller because the storyteller performs to you and then the audience feeds back mm. and it's it's kind of a little bit like theatre in that it's a it's a communal experience you're I'd all say, in it together I'd say it's more communal than theatre mm. mm. oh, yeah. uh, well, tradi- well you're being yourself in yeah, a, as but a in storyteller a, in like a traditional theatre setting the way the stage and the light is uh, you can't really see the audience mm-hmm. whereas in storytelling um, particularly I mean we're quite intimate in the storytelling mm-hmm. so maybe 18 people yeah. were very close to each other and you can definitely see them and if someone is looking bored or falling asleep or looking really excited you can see it and you can feed off their energy uh, going back to Black Sadducks we're vampires <laughs> but this but can you, sorry um, can you tell me about some good audiences then you've had some good experiences that you've had here where you're telling a story and you go wow that person actually really gets this yeah I, I, I think sometimes kids or people under a certain age I think you can have that that sort of moment because you know that a kid is not gonna lie or sugarcoat in the way that because I think that's a skill that we become adept at as we get older of you know uh, sugar sugarcoating things <laughs> and, uh, and lying and yeah, yeah. but like a, a kid doesn't doesn't care you know kids just gonna say it how it is and so mm. and I think particularly sometimes if you get it like maybe a school group you know a bunch of teenagers who should be way too cool for this in their own head but like maybe at the end on their way out and, and they'll by, by no means be glowing but they'll, they'll actually say yeah that, that was pretty good actually that was interesting <laughs> uh, but you know that that is fully genuine when they Ooh. say that and pro- and probably if anything a bit understated because if they do show too much enthusiasm they'll be crucified by their teenager friends by the, by the herd yeah 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 <laughs> so I always think that like little moments like that can be really really rewarding you know uh, because they're sincere we hmm. eavesdrop from times to time. <laughs> <laughs> but you can go in and listen in the room and sometimes you would hear a pin drop. Everybody's hanging. And it's hard for you guys when you're in the moment with the, with the group of people, you know, to, to really realise that. But you have them eating out of, out of your hands. And I just go back to the point you made. This is about the theatre of turning up. Mm. You have to be here. You can't do it through a screen or a touch thing. Yep. You have to be here. And it's about your engagement with the process and how well you're able to handle that. And I think there's more and more people who are engaged in live action role play and all these these other engagements. People get it now. They get that they're they're in a, in a process. And it, it's so nice to see when it works nicely and works well. It's a real reward. 
One of the great things is Dublin Comic Con has just ended down in the convention centre and the amount of kids who are doing cosplay yeah, of, yeah. of all sorts of descriptions or whatever is just fantastic because we've suddenly, well, back in my day, the only people that you kind of dressed up as was Jesus and the <laughs> Apostles for Lent. <laughs> I have a picture at home of Archbishop John Charles McQuaid mm. in full uh, sale. Right. Blessing the coom, the opening of the Coombe Hospital with his lace skirts. And, all, yep. and if that's not dressing up, I don't know what is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's that. But now we are more embracing. One of the things is we are more embracing of our mythology. I remember sitting at the Galway Film Fla a couple of years ago and seeing Song of the Sea by Cartoon Saloon on screen and crying. My, my eyes, I was just actually weeping at how beautiful our mythology and even just a version of our mythology a nice Irish light version of our mythology was even though some of those characters are really scary but it makes me beg the question if our mythology can work on a, on a, a world scale because that was an Oscar nominated film what else is there that we haven't told people that they, should, they are going to really like I think a lot of the time particularly with children sometimes children will come up to the front and I'll ask them like Irish kids up with their families and say, oh, what, what myths and legends do you learn in school? Nothing. No, I, I don't know any. And then I'll maybe prompt them and say, do you know, Oisin and Tierna Nog or the Salmon of Knowledge. And Salmon of Knowledge usually gets a little bit of a half nod, mm-hmm. but it's really not advocated for as a valid part of our history mm-hmm. and of our identity as being Irish. Actually, an interesting thing is um, on Leaving Cert, uh, I don't know if it's changed since I did the Leaving Cert um, oh, the, a uh, millennia ago. Star Nagelga, are um, you thinking of? No, um, the classics thing. On your mm-hmm. epic, you for classics, you, you study an epic and normally it's the Odyssey. But there's mm-hmm. an option to do the tone. Right. Oh. Nowhere teaches the tone. Yeah, uh, and I, I, I ended up in sixth year in the institute, uh, so people were coming from all around the place, and every school taught the Odyssey or the Aeneid. Nowhere taught the Tone. Mm. And, and that's out of the schools that actually do classical studies, which yeah, the schools that do few. classics, which yeah. is again a few, very few of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, nowhere did the Tone, which is it's it's a fantastic it's, story. It's an amazing story, and it's our story. It's like yeah. it's like you you know all the places the things are happening at, and yeah. you just sort of have a vague knowledge of yeah, Coo Holland. He he's the guy who played Hurling and Queen Maeve, and and I I'm dyslexic, so I didn't do Irish. But I always thought it was a pity that the Irish course doesn't cover some of the history and the myths and the the music and the culture it, as well. It used to, in a vague sense. I, my year was the last year that did the Starnagelga module of it. What's uh, Starnagelga? Um, sorry, <laughs> the history of Irish. It was supposed to be the section that covered your mythology and your music and stuff. What it actually involved in practice was learning off paragraphs for the exam. Yeah, oh, the leaving. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the biggest waste. Uh, yeah, and repetition. How to yeah, vomit? But you'd, you'd be vomiting it and not understanding what it was, and you weren't invited to engage with it mm-hmm. at any level. It was shockingly bad. And then, well, the year after me, they scrapped it for in favour of more oral, which I actually think is good for like the Irish language to have more. If it's spoken, but yeah, it's just, it's not on the course at all now. Going back to then, obviously you're a part of the... Federation of European Storytellers. Very good. And are we, are we in this room still convinced that the Irish are the best storytellers? (laughs) (laughs) uh, Well, we certainly have a very different style and I I was over... Do we have the best stories, maybe, is a better question. Well... You look at a lot of the stories and they are, I mean, you, you go down a sort of a Jungian thing and say it's the universal subconscious and that all stories are a retelling of the same story. Um, but even just in storytelling, I was over at a, a thing, uh, run part of Fest, it was a festival in Poland and there were... In uh, Warsaw. In Warsaw, oh, yeah. yeah. And there were four of us young storytellers from Europe. There was me from Ireland, a uh, girl from Norway, a girl from Italy and a guy from Greece. Right. And we were sort of talking, and there was an, a storyteller who was sort of mentoring us. Uh, he was English, and we were talking about it. And I think he mentioned was um, that the Irish fireside tradition of storytelling never really died out. And I sort of bristled a bit because the way he was talking about the fireside storytelling tradition, the Irish storytelling, uh, as a, I'm a sort of lesser, um, sort of like it was more folk rather than myth. Mm. And so I was sort of got very defensive <laughs> in, in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, but he wasn't meaning it in a dismissive me. That was just my automatic bristling. But Ireland has always... We sit down in the pub and we start to talk each, to each other and we tell each other stories. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're a nation of chatters. 
and we tell stories. So we have, while other countries have had to sort of like rebuild up their folk storytelling tradition that it might have been lost out due to modernization and things, we've managed to keep on to ours and we've all, we've never lost our storytelling. It's got less mm. prolific and less popular than it might have been at one stage, but we've never lost it, which is something other European countries. Mm. And again, there are other European countries where they have similarly their storytelling, their folk tradition in their music and their stories, it's never, it's never gone away. It's always been there strong. It even comes through in our language. Yeah. Like one of the most common phrases you hear around Dublin is, what's the story? Like the Irish version would be Ainscale, which is any story. And if there's nothing to say, you say Gelscale, which means like the literal translation is like, like the devil story, mm-hmm. like mm. no story. <laughs> but yet I would struggle to name many storytelling venues or pubs in Dublin. They possibly, they possibly exist. They're you starting, guys would know. They're starting to reemerge now. There was milk and cookies, and that died. Yeah, um, the Harbour Bar plays host to Candlelit Tales a good bit, and Where so did the now? Stag's Bray. Head. It's, it's Bray. Bray. Bray and the Stag's Head. Yeah, um, um, there's there's places, but it's more. It's a pub where if there is a storytelling group, they will go, and they will be happy to have a group come in and do the storytelling. But there used to be Milk and Cookies, which is how I got into storytelling, mm. which was it was a, a monthly event. And you could come there and tell a story, even if you'd never told a story before in your life or if you were a professional storyteller. Mm. It didn't matter. So I think the uh, I know the Clockwork Door were trying to set up a thing at that, but it didn't really work. So And there is a storytelling night in the Sugar Club. Oh, I can't there? remember the name of it, but I know Colm O'Regan is very involved in it. But... One of the things about those stories and the American style of storytelling, which is increasingly popular here, is actually a lot of those are based on personal experiences. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah but I, I, that's still, it's still a story. Oh no, it's still a story, but I think there's something brilliant about going, I will tell you the story that was passed on to me by my grandfather's grandfather. There you know? is, and, yeah. uh, but they both need to be because for there to be the story that was passed on from your grandfather's grandfather, uh, the grandfather's grandfather needs to tell it first. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm-hmm. The One of the things, though, is that storytelling doesn't exist in isolation. So the old saying used to be a third for dancing, a third for singing, and a third for talking right. or telling stories. So it's part of the process of the evening. So there's, yeah, there's dining, drinking, dancing, yeah. and storytelling comes in at that moment where it's just the right time for everyone to sit down, relax, and hear some stories. And I think people are more open. They've got that energy when you're talking about the kids having, you know, they've been fed, they've done their thing, and now they're ready, receptive. Over the summer, I was up in Enniskillen by Locker and just at uh, an extended family thing. And they they all knew that I was a storyteller and stuff. So I was sitting around a bonfire and there was a barbecue earlier and kind of went quiet. And one of the little kids that was about come up was like, Will you tell everyone a story? So I went and told a story to everyone, and it was the first time everyone was quiet the entire what weekend. What story did you tell? I told the birth of Mongon. Oh, yeah, that's a great one. Yeah, <laughs> um, with fire-breathing sheep. Um, twenty foot tall, fire-breathing sheep with venomous bites that fight um, for Scandinavia. It's a very odd story, but um, a lot of fun. And very, very rambling. So there's a lot of little side stories. So it takes a while to tell. <laughs> How did you get into storytelling? So Emily went to a, a, um, a milk and cookies night, storytelling night. How did you? I kind of followed Emily in a way, because Emily started a group called Tales from the Shadows, which is shadow puppetry and storytelling. Mm-hmm. And I was doing my undergrad in drama at the time, and I was very interested in writing, playwriting. So I just kind of started this as a way to like generate material for my playwriting and then I got more and more into the storytelling and it just kind of went from there and I started to kind of find myself as a performer as um, pretentious as that sounds because originally when I had started my undergrad I was convinced I wanted to be an actor and then realized I was not good at being an actor. It's one of the greatest revelations a person can have. Yeah. Yeah no not for me. But I did still like to perform and had the urge to keep performing. I was like, well, what am I good at doing? I'm good at lying <laughs> and I'm good at um, presenting myself as just as myself rather than trying to be someone else. Or So the kind of gravitated naturally towards storytelling after that. And yourself? Um, I kind of feel like I've been telling story 
stories in some capacity um, for for forever, really. Uh, like I remember. Well, first of all, I think it's really funny that Tom mentioned earlier on about the difference between kids who were read to versus kids who were getting all their uh, entertainment from screens. Mm-hmm. Because I was one of those kids, uh, I, I we just loved to be read to, and like I remember, even like having the, the insisting on some of the the same stories over and over again. Like my partic- I think I remember Rip Van Winkle was one of my particular favorites, and like I would just never tire of that one. And uh, yeah, I think that just. That really did shape me forever, you know. Um, my brother and I used to tell stories to one another where, like, I think we had a whole universe of characters and everything like that. And then, uh, much like Shannon, I, I became a drama kid. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, and did the whole nine yards. Uh, I studied uh, theatre and um, I've so I've acted in shows, I've written shows. And then, I, I guess, if... Shannon followed Emily to here. I kind of followed Shannon uh, to here because Shannon uh, cast me in a play, and uh, that was uh, what gave me my introduction to uh, to the National Leprechaun Museum. And uh, before I knew it, I was working here. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tom Mark, uh, your general manager, told me that you get applications for people who want to work here f- from all over the world. All over the world. Like yeah. Mexicans, Brazilians, Portuguese, Spanish and everything like that. Uh, some, some work and some don't. But yeah. do you, w- are, you're open, obviously, to having world storytellers here. No problem at all. And it's not, it's a question of, you, you know, when you're interviewing someone, you guys have seen this, when you're leaning into the person, when mm-hmm. they're telling you the thing, that's when you know it's working. And it's a very simple thing. And some people have it and some people don't. Um, that's and we would love to embrace more storytelling and get more storytellers in and connect with more storytellers it is a wonderful it is a wonderful thing and also it is a a, a necessary for a well-developed society that you're good storytellers there's a whole lot there's a great book on the origin of stories by brian boyd right um, and that explains a whole lot about how the storytelling works within society and it is something we do have in ireland i mean it is you know, I, I lament every time a TV goes on in a pub mm. because it, it, you know, takes over, it dominates the, you know, that ticker tape of Sky News, uh, yeah. re- repeating ad nauseum, whatever local recent tripe there's been. Whereas, you know, that, that sudden turn of phrase that someone would have at a pub or something slightly misheard that might lead the conversation off into a very strange place indeed. <laughs> and you would have a wonderful evening just out of that yeah, miscommunication. Or I've always thought that if there was no internet, I could possibly have been a Shanaki, but in the style of Johnny Patchine Mike in The Cripple of Inish Man. I know, I know, going place to place selling stories for food or money or trading. It's kind of like a newsman, you know, in one way. No, there is that. And there's a guy, I have a book from The Last Storytellers uh, about a guy who was in, a BBC guy was in Marrakesh. And he came across a storyteller in the market. Right. And the guy explained that he was one of the last storytellers in Marrakesh. And when he was seven or eight, he had come to town with his father and heard a storyteller then who was at the same age as he was in the 70s. And he was hooked from then on. Okay. Uh, but one of the things about storytelling is we need to believe you believe. Mm. And so you need to be yourself in the story. So you have to bring your full self to it, or at least we have to believe that you're bringing your full self to it. Sure. Um, so it, that's, and that's the difference, I think, between acting and, and the storytelling. Um, it is a, a different process. And because we're so up close and personal, um, I can see the inflections in your, and whether, whether you're actually reliving the story. And one mm. of the interesting things, and I'm sorry I've gone on, I'm finish now, is even if you didn't live that story, you lived a version of it before. Mm. So when you're telling the story of the cave of Keshkorn, there's something in your past that relates back to that and you're reliving that. And what we get from you is if you're reliving that story, we're interested to know what happened next because we know you're bought into it, you're invested in that and we're all in. Mm. What's interesting I find is that even though our national theatre was founded by people who were archivists of amazing fairy tales and fairy stories and retellers of it. We now are in a city where I doubt there's even one production in any of our theatres that's based on Irish mythology running right now. Um, there's one coming up, actually. Right, it's this land. Okay. It's in the Civic. And it's um, 
Oh, Cantalit Tales are doing that. Yeah, they are. Um, it's based on one of the earliest myths we have, chronologically at least. Um, it's the the myth of uh, Cesar, oh, yes. Cesar's children, who was apparently the fir- the first person to come to Ireland, ever. But she was a refugee. She was a refugee. So they're working with um, re- refugees and people who are not Irish born or like sure. non-nationals kind of crafting that story around this myth. I don't know kind of the details of the production, but I know it's based around that. And Cesar, if you trace back where geographically she would have come from, would have been around where Somalia is today. Okay. Mm. So there's two versions of the story, one where she's the granddaughter of an Egyptian priest, the other where she's the granddaughter of Noah, Noah with the arcs and the two of every kind of animal. Because uh, the monks, they were desperately trying to, mix. trying to Christianize they were, they, everything. They were trying to, they were, they were trying to like align these myths that the people were telling each other with the philosophy and the history that they were certain was true. They're trying to sort of mush the two together. She must have been, she must have been Noah's granddaughter. That that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. That, make that's, that's small aside here. So we did on one the our third last field trip go to Cesar's grave. So we always we go out fairly frequently into the countryside and look for places that relate back to the storytelling. Because right. the landscape is an extremely important part. It's the way it's the lived landscape, mm. and that becomes extremely. So if you want to check out Cesar's DNA, I can tell you where the grave is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is she's next to Queen Maeve's heart, isn't she? Apparently, yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice view from her grave. She's up in height. Yeah. And near um, near. Finbar, the king of the Munster fairies? It's the same hill. Is he king of Munster fairies or Connacht fairies? Connacht fairies. fairies. How many storytellers do you have working here? We have, I think, 13 at the moment, and we've had 47 in total. Wow. So part of the, and I, what really gets me excited is that part of the process is that these guys all here are learning stories, uh, developing their craft, and at some point they'll go into, like, like a dandelion clock, you know, into the ether, blown away, and ready, <laughs> ready, ready to drop seeds somewhere else. And it, it is that process of, you know, it's not just the people coming in as, as guests or, or participants, it's the people here learning, you, and I'm learning all the time. You, and had, the, a, you had a lovely phrase where you referred to what we're doing with the stories. I can't remember. Catch and release. Okay. Oh yeah, catch and release, <laughs> yeah. That's an interesting one. Um, I've been out with groups of musicians that trade songs and I've been out with dancers who trade dances because what would you do other than having danced all evening uh, for money, go and dance for your friends? Do you guys come and trade stories? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> we, one of, possibly one of my favourite things about working here is a thing that we, we try to do every month um, and uh, so we call it Story Club. Right. And so we just meet meet up after hours, and uh, we'll everybody will go out and find a new story, and and we'll sit down and and we'll share them, and uh, yeah, it's just always, uh, it's always a really fun night, and uh, it's. It's a, it's a dying art, as, as we've kind of touched upon a couple of times over the course of this conversation. Or, or sometimes even like we're, we're passing each other in the corridor and it's like, yeah. have you heard the story about <laughs> yeah, yeah. the time Finn did yeah. X? Well, that happened to us today. We were like, I don't know what we were talking about, but it came up the, one of the early stories in the Tawn. Which is the, the fight that two swineherds have. Yeah, because the tone are epic that they don't teach on the leaving cert for some reason. Has like, I think there are 10 sub stories that y- you need to know t- for the main story to make sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the first one, it's about the swineherds. These two swineherds, one of them lives in Connacht, one of them lives in Munster, Munster. And I've forgotten their names, but one of their names means that the whiskers that a pig has, and the other means the grunt that a pig has. <laughs> But depending on when the beech and the oak nuts fall, one will visit the other every year so that their pigs can equally feed. But Connacht the Munster decide to pit them against one another and one of them casts a spell against the other's pigs, saying no matter how much they'll eat, they'll stay skinny and then the next year the other does the same. And the long and the short of it is they both get fired as pig keepers because their pigs all die. And they keep fighting with one another over this, and they they change forms. They change to birds. They change they change to pigs at one point. I think they end up as two worms fighting against each other. The two worms get eaten by two cows, and the two cows give birth to the two bulls <laughs> in the town, Don Kula and Finbarnock. 
because in Irish mythology, as we discussed in the last episode, uh, the only way to get pregnant is to drink something that contains a small insect. Yeah. <laughs> there was no sex in Ireland before the Late Late Show. Yeah. That is an yeah. absolute Absolutely verified true. fact, <laughs> you know. If you wanted a baby, you had to drink a cup of tea with a worm in it. Yes. There yeah. you go. Which explains lots of our politicians. <laughs> not say that. You can edit that one out too. Emily, you seem very academic about your stories. And there's every, every story that's been mentioned so far, you go, ah, so... When people come and they say, I found a story, do you sometimes have to go, I'm going to pretend I don't know that one? Well, it's a lot of the time I, I don't know it or I don't know it in that version. Right. Um, OK. And most of the stories that I know, I know them from hearing other people tell them. Right. From hearing uh, Tom talk about them or hearing Paulie talk about them or Shannon talk about them or going to a Candlelit Tales thing and hearing them tell them. Like, uh, and there's a hugely famous one, the story of the Battle of Moitura, Lou and Balor of the Baleful Eye. I'd never heard that story till I heard a storyteller in Cork tell it. Right. And I, I suppose I'm a magpie, I hear someone else tell a story, I'm like, I like that mm. story. I'm going to go take that story and maybe see if I can find it somewhere and steal it and it's my story now. And then I tell it to someone else and hopefully mm. they'll tell it to someone That's else. That's possibly one of my favourite things about working here is that you hear a story and you absorb it and you process it and then when you tell it, it's yours and it's different. Mm. And every time it's told by someone else, it's a, it's a, complete it's a completely story. different yeah. story. may have the same constituent parts, yeah. but the storyteller brings themselves to it. And that's, some, that's another difference between storytelling and acting. An actor can be replaced and the same performance can happen seamlessly and you won't notice. Mm. You will notice a story told by two different storytellers because it will be utterly different. Yeah, I think part of the joy and part of the art is how each storyteller will make the the, the piece his or his or her own. You know, and so I think spoiler alerts don't apply in no. uh, in mm-hmm. this space. And is that something in storytelling that you can actually I can t- I can have a story and you can retell that story and part of the joy is that I am okay with that. Yeah, it's kind of like when you see an amazing piece of graffiti or street art, and somebody's put a tag on it, and the street artist will go, "Well, that's just part of street art," you know. Yeah, that that's quite interesting because in plays and whatever, you yeah. you can't have that. Yeah, storytelling yeah. is like inherently an unselfish art form, right? In that it's all about sharing and passing on. The art of giving it away. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, There's nothing better than hearing a, a story you've heard before. Hear somebody tell it with just a different twist on it. Mm. And suddenly you're, you're, you're going, oh my God, okay, and, but that means this could happen, that could happen, and your brain just started this firing, and that makes it interesting. I think it, because the, it's a tradition which comes from a time when we just didn't have the same ideas around like intellectual property that we have mm. today, and I say a lot of that is to do well, with... Well, we could talk about the story of the first copyright case, which comes from Irish myth. Oh, yes. Really? Yes. oh yeah. Yes. Yes. Column it was, kills cow. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was um Saint which one? It was Column it was it was Column Kill as far yeah, as I remember. Was, yeah, and it was one of the other basically he was visiting a mate who had a really nice book. Right. It was mm. gorgeous. Right. And he well, he wanted a copy of it. Okay. But his friend didn't want to give him a copy because it was his book. So he he copied it. He borrowed the book. He and secretly, it. and he he had these magic glowing fingers that when he made illuminated manuscripts, his fingers literally started to illuminate the manuscripts, which meant if he was copying something secretly, you could work it out quite quickly. And they went to the high king about it, saying he, he copied my book. No, it's my book. And the king decreed to every cow its calf, to every book its copy, and that mm. is the first example of copyright law in Europe. Mm. And then there was a big war. His argument was that that, that the owner of the original book lost nothing by him having a copy of it. Right. That was his argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is fair enough. Which is an argument. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Are there any stories, Tom, that aren't told here or that won't be told here other than like the the obvious ones? What are the obvious ones? Ah, racist. Sex, but not. Uh, look, I know there's an awful lot of weirdness in Irish stories, but I mean just ones that just aren't suitable. I haven't come across a story that isn't suitable. So what I'd say by that is every every storyteller will put their spin on it. Okay? Right. So if they're not want don't want to tell that story mm. to that audience, that's fine. Okay? Mm. But even if the story is in, it, unless the story is does not, you, you can distill out those elements out of it and still make the story work. 
Um, but I don't think there's a story there that relies inherently on its bigotry right. in order for it to work. Or there, you can tell it and then point out the problems. Like a, a lot of the stories from the Ulster Cycle, a lot of the stories about Ku Hullen. Yeah, incredibly oh, misogynistic. Misogynistic, toxic masculinity, uh, just awful King Connor McNessa is a horrible person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry, that's my personal opinion. So I sometimes, uh, on one of my Darkland tours, I sometimes tell the story about Ku Hullen killing his only son, in which I very clearly make point out that Ku Hullen, he's our great hero. In that story, he is a cheat, a rapist, mm-hmm. and he kills his own son and a dog. So but he killed his own son without realising. Well, no, it okay. depends on what version. I was regarded that as a retribution <coughs> yeah, on, on him. It is partly, but it's also, you insist, you, you threaten this woman at sword point to bear you a son. Gave her a ring so you would recognise the son, then fecked off back home and forgot yeah. all about them. And he put the son under a gash yeah, th- th- that, that he couldn't cannot. avoid a conflict. Yeah, if he was challenged to a fight, he could not refuse. If someone asked him his name, he couldn't give it. I don't know, I don't, I don't have any sympathy for Colin on this one. But sure you played for County. That's why he got away with everything. Pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. He was just so Um, damn good at hurling. There's a wonderful line in Thomas Kinsella's translation of the Thon where I'm paraphrasing now, but Ku Cullen, he's sitting on a cushion and he gets so angry that the cushion bursts underneath him and the feathers go all about the house and he runs out and uh, Cothbod, who's a bard in it, goes, this is troubling. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be troubling. Yes. That would be yeah, fairly troubling. Was he the master of the understatement? Yeah. Or, <laughs> you know, okay. If there was one story from not Ireland... One story not from Ireland that you could tell here. Only one. What would it be? Only one. <laughs> Only one. It is World Storytelling Day. It is. So. And uh, I, I, outside of here, I tell a lot of fairy tales, which I would have French or German or Scandinavian or Italian origins. I'm just trying to limit down to one. <laughs> <laughs> I do, just with classic, I, I've, I've always been a huge fan of uh, Orpheus and Eurydice. just oh, yeah. think it's a beautiful story. Uh, that's from the, the Greek tradition, obviously. And, and do you practice telling stories like that? I mean, obviously here, when you get into a rhythm of storytelling, you find you have your own script and you find that you're pausing at the same times and you know where to get the laughs and everything like that. Do you practice? Do you get to practice other stories? Um, me personally, no, not as such, not as such. Because yeah, I so, like sometimes I sort of n- need to know that. Okay, well, you know, on this date, I'll have to actually sit down and perform this story in front of people. Uh, otherwise, I can just get very lazy. So <laughs> you know, I need, I need, I need the carrot on the stick, really, which is uh, what's, what what uh, is is good about uh, working here. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think I've, I have an idea in my head of how these stories go, but I, if I wouldn't be able to stand up and just perform them in front of people in, to the kind of quality that I can with the... To the standard you expect yeah, to yourself. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. I think per- possibly some of our storytellers might work in that sort of a way where, where, where they very possibly could, but yeah, for me, I like to be, uh, I like to be rehearsed, you know. Yeah, which is fair enough. Yeah. You're a professional, so <laughs> you would hope that. Shut on. I'm a sucker for Grimm's fairy tales. Mm. I love them. It's a particular one, the Juniper Petrie, that I've told a couple <gasps> of times that I absolutely adore telling. Give us a two-line synopsis <laughs> for you. Husband and wife own an orchard. Husband gives birth to a boy. Wife gives birth to a boy. Wife dies. Husband remarries. Wicked stepmother. Kills boy. Comes back as a bird. And the bird um, gives the game away. Yeah, wow. with some cannibalism. With some cannibalism. Thrown in. Okay. Yeah. Lovely, light-hearted, beautiful. Yeah, mm-hmm. really nice. Children love it. Of oh, course, yeah, but children yeah. love that sort um, of... Well, one of the greatest masters of storytelling and one of the greatest utilisers of folklore in modern times has been Terry Pratchett, and he yeah. always wants to give small kids dark stories. Yeah. There's, um, Neil Gaiman also mm. says, like, children want and need to be scared and there's nothing wrong with scaring children. There's another thing about fairy tales that he says. Fairy tales are more than true, not because they say that dragons are real, but because they say they can be beaten. Tom, actually, before we go to Emily, story from... Oh, I like the story of Prometheus and Epimetheus. Oh, yeah. And Prometheus, his name means forethought, and Epimetheus means afterthought. Right. And uh, Prometheus was given the job of distributing the attributes of all the animals. But he was too lazy to give the brother the brother the job. And by the time he came round to humans, he'd handed out all the hooves and tusks and horns and hair. And 
uh, when Prometheus came down to see what he'd done, he found all the humans cowering in a cave. Right. So the only had thing he had left to give them in his sack was cunning and guile. Uh, <laughs> Emily. I was going to say Bluebeard, but then I realised I do actually tell a version of Bluebeard, or you could put it into a Bluebeard subset, which comes from originally a Danish ballad that then travelled through Europe and ended up in Ireland, and I tell a version of where I mix it in with some more fairy lore. But I'd love to tell the ballad of Tamlin, which is a Scottish fairy tale, and it has a lot of similarities to Irish folklore and stuff, but it is definitely a Scottish story. You couldn't, I couldn't tell in here and claim that it was Irish, right. uh, partly because anyone who was had ever been to Scotland would go, hang on a minute. <laughs> hang on a minute! <laughs> yeah. yeah, but um, I, I've, I've recently been sort of getting into looking at songs and ballads and things to find uh, stories and then play around with them and mix them together. But uh, yeah, the Ballad of Tamlin mm. is one that I would, I'd love to tell. Or Tatterhood. Sorry, I've just remembered oh, that one. Oh, Tatterhood is Tatterhood, which is about, um, well, it starts with a queen who can't have a baby, as they often do. So she's told to eat one of these magic flowers, but she eats two. She then gives birth to two babies. One is a beautiful baby girl. The other is a hideous baby girl who comes out fully dressed, holding a wooden spoon and riding a goat. Wow. And that's how the story starts. Wow. <laughs> there is a little box in front of me, a little pink box that has le- uh, suggestions for the Leprechaun podcast. Some of the post-its or notes in it read, thanks for the beautiful experience. It was so nice and the storyteller was very kind. Super recommended hugs from Madrid. Oh. Is kindness part of storytelling, do you think? Well, there's a generosity there, but we need, it needs a kindness that needs to go both ways. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Is that like kindness in patience, kindness in... Uh, kindness in like being willing to give your time and your attention and your energy. Okay. You have to recognise kindness to, yeah. to know it. I like this one. It said, I love the museum. It is very nice and I feel like a kid. I'm willing to return here if I come back to Ireland. Love from Spain. There's a lot of positive ones, but there's a lot of questions here as well. Uh, The most important one is probably how long has Home and Away been running? (laughs) (laughs) Emily, you know... I don't, know how, I don't know how long Home and Away has been running, but on every single episode now of the Leprechaun Museum podcast, somehow Home and Away has come up. I don't nice. understand this. <laughs> Once okay. there was a person and then they found Australia. So some of the questions <laughs> that sure, have sure, actually yeah, been asked. Home and Away. <laughs> Somebody who's asking for a friend and Tom giving this one to you. What exactly is a puka? Okay, so this is a spirit creature of the night. Um, and I mostly describe it as a large dog, small pony. Oversized goat, that would be about the size of it, I would guess. Usually black. Uh, eyes of burning coal. Right. Okay. And the problem with the puka is when you're standing somewhere lonely, it comes up behind you, goes in behind your, the back of your knee. Right. Okay. And you end up on its back and it takes you on a journey into the countryside, usually depositing you at the furthest cliff. Okay. Where right. you're in danger of falling off. But when you come home late to your partner the next day and you look disheveled, and like you've had a rag in every bush, you can say I was taken away by the puka. And their I breath see. smells of whiskey, which is why you might have a certain uh, sedge. I would need a drink of whiskey after being taken okay. away by the puka. Tips on how to handle an unruly changeling. Okay, well, there's a number of, uh, uh, of, of uh, plays uh, in, in the old playbook <laughs> of, <laughs> of how you deal with a changeling. Drop it down a well. Drop it, leave it on a dung heap. Right. Um, Offer it whiskey. <laughs> yeah. The red hot poker. The red yeah. hot poker down the ugly little creature's throat. Burn the house down. Yeah. And then shortly afterwards, you watch it shoot up the chimney. Yeah, but uh, just, yeah. just be certain that you, you are dealing with a changeling, yeah. not a child. Yeah. yeah. Right. Funny thing with the. Oh, sorry. The, the funny thing with the offering at whiskey is that it's kind of an Irish thing. If you have a toothache or if a child is teething. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. To put whiskey on the gums. It used to be. Uh, <laughs> yeah. used to be. Yes, as I'm in the middle of this process. Not so much anymore. Yeah, yeah uh, but kind of the idea of giving whiskey to keep to to get the child to stop screaming, maybe yeah. to get the changeling to go yeah. away. Yeah. I mean, I'm told this. I never experienced it that I know of. I did. Uh, right. My parents claimed I I would not sleep as a as a baby. I just I I'd be quiet if there's someone else in the room. But I just if I was left alone, I didn't like being alone. So they tried everything, including dosing me with whiskey, and apparently didn't really work. It just Brandy made me taste. slightly drunk. <laughs> there is a very nice, well, nice <coughs> Hilary Mantel, who you might know from um, Wolf Hall, has a book called uh, "Every Day Is Mother's Day," right? And that's about a changeling, right? Um, so at the very end of it, it it's a, 
Hilary Mantel writes quite a dark stream into these things and it becomes darker and darker as time goes by. In a medical emergency, who would you trust, Dean Ka or Fairy Doctor? Dean Kept. He'll give me a silver arm. Yeah, I'm going with the fairy doctor in this one. You're going to have to explain that in a later podcast. <laughs> if I was a Leah Fall, would you scream when you touched me? Would I? No, sorry. If I was a Leah Fall, would I scream when you touched me? <laughs> that's a that's a pickup line and a half. Yeah. <laughs> I swear that was in the box before I opened it. <laughs> Tom, what, what's what's the Leah Fall and why might it scream? The Leah Fall is the uh, the stone of destiny. And this uh, purportedly stands at the head of Tara. Right. And if the rightful king of Ireland touches the stone, the stone will scream. But the stone of scone in Scotland is Isn't meant it? to be taken Very from good. Tara. Right. And then, then again taken to the coronation seat and underneath the coronation seat in Westminster Cathedral. Right. So it's the same stone. And this is the kingly stone. So I wouldn't be an expert on it. But it's, it's repeated around the British Isles. And uh, we went there to, to Tara on we a did. field trip. And we all decided to place our hands upon the Leia Fall. And it didn't scream. So we started screaming. And then the sky started screaming at us. It did. We got hailstones and everything at that point. And some, wow. some woman who had been there for some other experience dressed in rainbow colours joined us for the screaming. Nice. <laughs> Rather a thing. Yeah. Nice. I like this one. If you had to go for a drink or a coffee with one person from Irish mythology, who would it be and why? Again, just one. He'd know some great coffee places. <laughs> yeah, again, just one. You can bring a few. Like, if they're, like, would you go for a drink with Nafina, for example? Yeah, yeah. No, you know, don't know what they do after a drink. Angus Oak. Yeah, I mean, he'd be fun. Again, I'm, I'm still going Dagda. I think he'd know some he really would. good, he'd mm. get some really good coffee. Bran and Skjolan. <gasps> the dogs! Yeah, yeah. the dogs. Because... Um, <laughs> Humans are terrible, and they're they're dogs that are as intelligent as humans, but more intelligent than some humans. Yeah, but you don't have to have a conversation with them, and they're dogs, so all around great. (laughs) I'm going to end almost as I began uh, with a note that says, "Please message or ring me with further information on locating real leprechauns." (laughs) So we're in the National Museum, National Leprechaun Museum of Ireland. It's its ninth birthday today. Today is. World Storytelling Day. Tell me your favourite thing about leprechauns. The music, I think, for me. Yeah. Just, yeah. Uh, apparently, I think I heard sometime recently that the guy who wrote Danny Boy, he's, he said that he originally heard it been played by leprechauns. <laughs> Amazing. Mm, yeah. <laughs> wow. I like um, the story of Queen Bebo. Yeah. Of whom the social network was named many <laughs> <laughs> years later. Yes. <laughs> yeah, she's in... One of the very, very earliest leprechaun stories. And um, yeah, she's an amazing figure. Um, I'm not sure how much I'm allowed to say about her. <laughs> yeah, um, she was said to be three fists high. She has an affair with a man called King Fergus. Who's a king? Who's, who's a king? Of Ulster. Oh, not a king's Ulster. Uh, but Fergus was um, well endowed. That's what the name Fergus means. I'll leave the rest to your imagination. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, leprosmut. Yeah. I think the thing I like most about leprechauns is uh, they're seen as solitary fairies. Uh, so they're able to get people to leave them alone a lot of the time, which I think is quite a useful skill. Yeah. Mm. I like the fact that they're tricksters. I like the fact that they upend the status quo, right. that they're able to play with it, reframe arguments, turn people's against language and their... their um, prejudices against themselves and that for me is a really interesting attribute and, and why the stories you know flip things round and uh, the highest become the lowest Is that why you think the National Leprechaun Museum has lasted as long and as well because you are also a trickster and a subverter and people come in expecting one thing but get a different experience which is better they it cha- I love the background yeah yeah <laughs> the so shuffling it's like, just a leprechaun yeah, it's just a leprechaun. So, like, the National Leprechaun is technically, theoretically, possibly should never have worked. <laughs> no, and this is the interesting thing, is it, there should have been no space for it because there, the, the storytelling in Ireland should be everywhere. Sure. And there shouldn't be the kind of need for this collection to, to bring together, to get a momentum about it, a critical mass about it. So, the, I suppose... That's where I'm at, mm. and there, there should there should not have been room, but there is, and I'm delighted there is. But it was a job I kind of thought that this needs doing. Yes, and here we are. 
Yeah. Indeed. And there we went. Yeah. And happy World Storytelling Day. Emily, what's coming up in the next podcast? Oh, uh, the next podcast is going to be on curses. Oh, nice. Nice. And you'll have to wait until then. Thank you very much for having me in. And I hope people enjoyed. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Huge thanks to Dara Doyle for leading us through the conversation about storytelling for World Storytelling Day. And again, if you're interested in coming to our celebration of World Storytelling Day, tickets can be bought on leprechaunmuseum.ie. World Storytelling Day is Wednesday 20th. Hope you have a great time.